And so um, before I, I get into reading Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12, uh, the title of this sermon is Two Mountains. Um, and I want to uh, talk uh, about um, a book that was written recently by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. And using his book a little bit here for our introduction and conclusion. But he, he talks about in his introduction to his book, Two Mountains, he talks about the first mountain. And how he describes this first mountain is there's the mountain represents normal goals that our culture endorses to be successful, uh, to be well thought of, to get invited into the right social circles, and to experience personal happiness. And the way that uh, we define this is nice homes, nice family, nice vacations, good food, good friends, and so on. Really kind of the pleasures of life, right? The, 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 the desire to, to obtain the comforts and pleasures of life. And for many in our communities, the drive is to have nice homes, nice families, nice vacation, good food, good friends, and so on. The drive towards niceness and comfort, respect, and social networks, right? The phrase goes, it's better who you, it's better who you know than what you know. This is the path to nice things, a nice life, a comfortable life. The social network, the amount of people that look to you and view you as honorable or respectful. Then something happens that is unexpected, a tragedy, an adversity, an altering of your plan, and you get thrown the off the first mountain. You're now in the valley, and what will you do? For many, right now, during this pandemic, your dream job has evaporated. Your dream marriage and family has turned into a nightmare. Your small business you have planned, risked, sacrificed, dreamed over is at risk of bankruptcy or closure. You failed to get in that graduate program that you had hoped would lead to success and comfort. Where do you go from here? We're kind of thrown off this, this mountain, this climb, this clawing for comfort and success of life. And many of us, maybe you, have been thrown off that mountain, right? You've gone back to the bottom, to the valley. And you look up and should I, should I continue the climb? What do I do now? Where do I go from here? The context for Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12, we get reintroduced to the Pharisees. So let me uh, read this passage and then we'll jump into kind of talking about the context here. This is Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Are you not are are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. Verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is God's word for his people. Who are the Pharisees? I mean, this is a group of people. Throughout this study of Luke, we have talked about who these, who these, who this group of people are. These group of men that tend to be an annoyance to Jesus, who continue to bring up conflict and crisis with Christ, wanting to debate Christ, continually angered, uh, angered by the words of Christ. The Pharisees were a sect of Jewish leaders that really were uh, that rot, that that became a, 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 an entity or grew out of the the struggle uh, with of the Jewish people with the Greek Empire during kind of the in between intertestamental periods of God's word, and so they rose up and they were uh, men or a group of men, group of Jewish religious leaders that cared very much for the law and for doctrine. They cared very much for their rules and the rules that they had stated on how they should live their lives and how others should live their life. They prided in their piety. Pharisee actually is a, the root of that word is a Hebrew word that means separate. They separated themselves from others by their piety, by their righteousness. Uh, Luke 11, 37 through 38 Uh, in this passage, they are insulted by Jesus, right? They're insulted by Jesus' ignorance or defiance to wash himself before eating. They invited Jesus over, uh, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus over to his house uh, for a meal, and Jesus did not wash himself in the way that they uh, believe uh, Jews and rabbis should wash themselves before meals, ritually cleaning themselves kind of representing the cleanness of their sin, that their sin was washed away, that they are pure and holy and righteous, and they would ritually clean themselves. And Jesus didn't do this. And and their souls fed on pride and self-righteousness. And they had issues with Jesus' uh, defiance or ignorance to the law or to the rules that were stated and how they should wash themselves before for a meal. Then Jesus kind of goes into this uh, insult, insulting them and saying on the outside they seem righteous, but on the inside they're actually far from God. And the inside they're full of greed and wickedness. And externally they're faithful, right? They look religious. They look faithful. They look pious. They look holy. But actually their love for God was a sham. It was fake. So Jesus pronounces judgment on them. He says, woe, woe is a word of judgment. He says, woe is you, for you've neglected justice and the love of God, but embraced outward actions to get noticed, to establish your 
external holiness and self-righteousness. Jesus woes them again, right? It's kind of like that SNL skit where the, the, the people are walking off the plane and the stewardess are saying bye-bye, right? He's just woeing here. He's woeing there. He's woeing them. He's pronouncing judgment on them left and right. And Jesus reveals their motivation, why they do what they do, why they wash themselves, why they tithe, why they're so strict. They love the best seat in the synagogues and the gathering in the marketplace. In Matthew 23, 6, they like the best places of honor at the banquets. Wearing dignified robes, Mark 12, 30. They're called rabbis in Matthew 23, 7. What they love, they don't love God. Their motivation is status, to be loved, to be revered, to be respected. They had developed this well-crafted system to be praised, to be comfortable, right? They have developed this system where they, they have status, they have power, they have respect, they have the, the chief seats at the banquet. They're greeted with a certain flair of honor and respect in the marketplace. People call them teacher. Now Jesus has come along and disrupted their system, destroying the value of the first mountain and climbing to the top and the summit for respect and the honor of people. In Luke 9, 23 through 27, Jesus says to his disciples, and I say to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus is saying, your climb to the mountain for wealth and power and respect and the honor and the chief seats and, and being revered is a sham. It's a waste. It has no value. To seek honor, to seek glory, to seek wealth is to deny yourself, to forfeit your life. Even says in, in Luke 9, 45 through 48, when the disciples were asking, who is the greatest? Who will, how can we be the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus says, if you welcome the children, right? The least of these, the lowest group in our society. If you welcome them as honorable guests and serve them, you're the greatest in my kingdom. Jesus even says in Luke 9, 57 through 62, Right? These, these groups of people, these three figures want to follow Christ. But what does he say to them? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's disrupting their entire well-crafted system on how to achieve comfort. Jesus encourages and teaches and proclaims to deny yourself, to embrace discomfort, to pursue comfort. The teacher in 1145 of Luke says, teacher, in saying these things, you're insulting us also. If you are pursuing comfort, ease, 
respect from others, convenience with your wants and needs, you will be insulted by Christ. So the main idea of this sermon is the uncomfortable, awkward, inconvenient, and challenging faith that is in Christ leads to the comfort, care of God, and the Spirit's guidance in life. The uncomfortable, awkward, inconvenient, and challenging faith in Christ leads to the comfort, care of God, and the Spirit's guidance in life. And the big idea is that faith in Christ is disruptive to the society around you, not conciliatory, not conciliatory. So the first point, this is the, this is the main point, and everything else is kind of subpoints to this, but the main point of this passage is embrace the discomfort of confessing and walking humbly in Christ to receive the comfort of God for eternity. I'll say it again. Embrace the discomfort of confessing and walking humbly in Christ to receive the comfort of God for eternity. So the first kind of sub-point is, is beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven, the le- the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Coming back to actually Luke chapter 2, we see he says this in verse 1 of Luke 12. So there's a, a, a group of people, they've all kind of, this, is, this, this event, this passage kind of happens in the midst of kind of ends chapter 11. He says, in the meantime, many thousands of people had gathered together. Many, many, more than thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people uh, are gathered around Jesus and these Pharisees. Whatever conversation that Jesus and the Pharisees are having at the end of chapter 11 has caused a mob, has caused a stir, and people are, are kind of Uh, clamoring and stepping over each other and pushing one another to listen and watch this debate that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. And a hypocrite is a Greek term that means an actor, right? It, It didn't have a negative sense in the Greek culture. But in Jewish culture, Jesus is using the word hypocrite in a negative sense, in a negative way. Someone who claims to speak for God, but does not. He's a pretender, or she's a pretender, or they're pretenders. They show an outward appearance of piety and faith, but it's a costume. It's basically a Halloween costume. You know, we have our kids dress up like Marvel characters or dinosaurs or whatever. These Pharisees are wearing a Halloween costume. They're wolf, wolves in sheep's clothing. Mark 7, 6 uh, Jesus is, is uh, using uh, Isaiah, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is true about these Pharisees. They're hypocrites. Matthew 6, verses 2 through 16, right? The Pharisees are hypocrites. They give so that people can see. They pray so that people can hear and watch. They fast so that people will take notice. Their care is for the chief seats, the honorable titles. They care little for God and actual faithfulness. So this, is, this mob scene proceeds. Uh, some of these people are against Christ. Some of these uh, are indifferent, perhaps, or others are disciples, the 12 or others that have been following Christ. This is the mob scene of Luke chapter 12. And Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, Beware of these Pharisees. Beware of the Pharisees. They are leaven. 
They are uh, a bad influence. Guard against this influence of the Pharisees. They are a corrupting influence. Leaven is a, is a substance you, you put in to cause bread to rise. A little will, will affect the whole lump. A little of this influence will corrupt many. They are corrupting influence. Don't fall in the trap to their teaching and instructions. These Pharisees, like I said before, are extremely accurate and minute in all matters associated with the law. Paul, in Acts 23 and Acts 26, says that he was a Pharisee. In Philippians 3, 4 through 6, he talks about how he was so dedicated to the law, that he was zealous for the law. He was upright, blameless when it comes to the law, committed to the religious practices of the Jewish faith. These were the good boys. Mamas would have been proud of their boys. If you had a son that was a Pharisee, you would have been proud. The sticker on the car bumper, right? My son is a Pharisee. Christ calls them out as bad guys. They are the ones that are the bad influence. They're the corruptors. Why does he say this? Why does he say that their influence is corrupt or their influence is bad? to beware of them, to be on guard against them. So Jesus then instructs his disciples in explaining why they should be on guard against these Pharisees. He says in verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. You cannot hide what is in your heart. What you truly believe, what you truly are will be revealed. God sees all and knows all. There's nothing you can hide from the eyes of God. You may be able to hide from the eyes of man. You may be able to whisper in the darkness that no one will be able to hear your true intentions or your true, your true motives or beliefs. But God sees and hears all. He knows all. The writer of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter, chapter 12 talks about God's ability to see all. He says here in, in verse 12, the last verse of Ecclesiastes verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We see in Romans 2, 16, that the secrets of man will be held accountable to God, that the secrets of our hearts, the secrets of our thoughts are known and seen by God. What the world sees, what people see, might fool them, but God will not be fooled. So what Jesus is saying is that the most private of places, the most private of spheres, become the most public. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, you may be able to fake, you may be able to put on a, and a costume to fool the world, but you will not fool God. He sees the heart. He sees the thoughts. He sees the views. He sees the beliefs. And you, you, the, what you may think is private, what you may think is secret, God knows and will be revealed. Uh, a, a kind of an interesting story. It's kind of a sad story. Uh, and I, I knew someone who went to the university, went to Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. It's a Baptist college down in Alabama. And it was famous that students would sleep in on Sunday and not go to church. 
But what they would do to prove or to show that they went to church, even if they didn't, they would put on their church clothes and go to lunch. So that people would see them as if they had just come home from church, but actually they slept in. They actually didn't even go to church. At the same time, people do this like with Instagram, like they post like videos or, or, or pictures of their Bibles as if they may have studied it and read it to show that they are doing their quiet time, that they love God and love his word. But for many, most likely, or possibly, they're just showing this side of piety or faithfulness or holiness and actuality. They care little for God and care little for his church. What is deep in your heart, what's tucked away, God sees. He knows the heart and the, of these Pharisees, and they hate his father, and they hate Christ. They may be able to put on this facade, this costume that makes them seem like they love God, but Jesus calls them out and says, actually, you're so far from loving my father, and it's all a sham. The outward appearance of faith in Christ is also a sham. Woe to you. If you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it, Jesus says in Luke eleven forty four, Basically, woe to you because what you are is you're an unmarked grave. You're, di- you're dead in your heart, dead in your sin, not made alive by the Spirit of God. And people walk by you not knowing what your true heart is. The question is, do people walk by you thinking you're a Christian? without knowing you're actually so far from Christ. Colossians 2, verse 9, Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Can you honestly say that you walk in Christ? Or do you walk in comfort, convenience, consumerism, individual preferences, and happiness? God knows what is in your heart. No point in continuing to play the part. God knows. It's already been revealed. He knows what's in your heart. Stop playing the part. Take off the costume. Reveal your true beliefs. Reveal your true faith and repent and truly put your faith in Christ. Jesus kind of goes on here. Fear him who after he was killed has authority to cast into hell. So he says that Jesus has all, God has all knowledge. He, everything that is secret will be revealed. He knows all, he sees all, but also he has ultimate, ultimate power. He says, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that can, they can do. He says in, here in Luke chapter, chapter 12, verse 11, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you very in that very hour what you ought to say. If you confess Christ, if you acknowledge him before men, expect opposition. Right? Expect this opposition. Expect that people will hate you because of your faith in Christ, that you have confessed Christ, that you acknowledged him before Men, expect opposition. But he says, do not fear them. Fear the one who can kill body and cast the soul into hell. Fear God above 
rulers and men and governments and groups. Why should we expect opposition? First off, the Bible says that we'll expect opposition, but also there is an offense. The cross is offensive. The, 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 the old hymn, the old rugged cross, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. So despised by the world. When you confess Christ, you accept the discomfort of trusting in the old rugged cross. The cross, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The old rugged cross is a symbol of shame, and the world despises it. The hymn keeps going, Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world. When Muslims are converted to Christianity, uh, other Muslims will ridicule and alienate converted Muslims. Those who are Muslims who convert to Christianity, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the rest of their families and their friends and their communities will ridicule and alienate them. We know the story of ISIS in 2015 who killed Egyptian Christians. 21 Egyptian Christians were beheaded by ISIS. And below it said, people of the cross, people of the old rugged cross. They hated and despised the people of the cross. We think about what if one of these or a group of these Pharisees during the time of Jesus had believed in Christ and followed Christ? What would have happened? They would have been ridiculed and alienated by the other Pharisees, mocked by the establishment. They would lose respect. And well, no longer will they be given the chief seats in the banquet. No longer will they be greeted in the marketplace as rabbi. They will lose honor. And the unwillingness to lose the comfort they have for the discomfort of faith in Christ. There's a loss of trusting in Christ and confessing Christ and acknowledging Christ before men. The loss of taking up your cross. When Geis Bonhoeffer says, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That to follow Christ is to surrender the will. That he is Lord. I am no longer Lord. I no longer uh, have autonomy over my life. I have now been submitted myself to the will of the Lord. John Stott, the theologian, says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God himself for man. To be a follower of Christ, to confess Christ, is a life of repentance and relinquishing autonomy. And relinquishing your will, and relinquishing the self. Bonhoeffer says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. 
Christianity without relinquishing your autonomy is not real. It is a satanic, satanic gospel. It is an unbiblical gospel. It is a Christless gospel. It is not about your best life now. Mark 10, 45, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. It is about sacrifice and service and not personal gain. It's about commitment, not consumerism. Following Christ will be uncomfortable. The loss of coolness and respectability. The zeitgeist, right? The zeitgeist is a word, it's a German word that means the spirit of the time. To be a Christian is not to follow the spirit of the time. This idea that you can be a Christian and be cool in the community is laughable. We are stranger and exiles on earth, Hebrews says. Christians aren't cool. We aren't relevant. We're not a part of the spirit of the time. The gospel is strange. It crucifies the pride. It crucifies the ego. It crucifies the, the self-esteem. And you're putting all of your life in autonomy and you're relinquishing it to the Lordship of Christ. John Stott, in his book, Cross of Christ, said either we preach that human beings are rebels against God under his just judgment and if left to themselves, lost. And that Christ crucified who bore their sin and curse is the only available Savior. Or we emphasize human potential and human ability. With Christ brought in only and only in to, bo to boost them, and with no necessity for the greater endeavor, the former is the way to be faithful, the latter the way to be popular. It is not possible to be faithful and popular simultaneously. For many, to be a follower of Christ is a loss of wealth. The mark of the gospel is not health and wealth, but nails and blood. And the Pharisees desired everything that were potential losses if they followed Christ. Acknowledging him before men, so they denied him. They cursed him. They mocked him. They questioned him. And they refused to worship him. They refused to acknowledge him before men. They held on to their comforts. But it's so interesting about this passage at the end of this paragraph in verse 7. We are told that God is the God of all comfort. He says, fear not. You're more value than the many sparrows in verse 7. Not one sparrow is forgotten by God. Sparrow's value is one-eighth of a day's wages. And you're far more valuable than a sparrow, and he doesn't forget one sparrow in his created world. And you are far more valuable. If you want the comforts of God, if you want the care of God, acknowledge Christ, trust in Christ, and reject the comforts of the world. God has all authority, and he has power to kill the body and cast the soul into hell. If you're denying Christ before men, you will be denied before the angels of God. To seek comfort leads to eternal discomfort. To see Christ, to confess him, to walk humbly in Christ. You have the care of God. You possess the God of all comfort. Comfort is not obtained in the pursuit of honor and respect and praise and wealth and status. 
But comfort is obtained by confessing and humbly walking in Christ. What's so interesting about Philippians 2, 5 through 11, this is in the book that Paul writes to the Philippian church. He talks about Christ accepting discomfort, right? Taking on the form of a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then at the end of this, he says, by this, God exalted Christ and gave him a name above all names. To ascend, you must first descend. Humility is the path to all comfort, honor, and status because we have acknowledged Christ, trusted in Christ, and Christ will exalt us. Christ will glorify us. The cross is also a symbol of victory. The path of uncomfortable, the path of sacrifice, the path of commitment, the path of humility is the path to life. And this is completely disruptive to the Pharisees' system. God's Spirit will guide those who embrace uncomfortable faith in His Son. He says this at the end of here in verse 10. Even in trials, we are brought before the synagogue, we're brought before rulers, we're brought before governors and, and governments and powers. We can be confident in the Spirit's comforting power in our lives. God values His Children, First Peter one, chapter uh, verses five through seven. First Peter one five through seven. First Peter one five through seven. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that have the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God will secure us in trials. God will preserve us in trials. God will comfort us in all trials. Jesus even says in Luke 21, 12 through 13, when they throw you before the courts, when they throw you before the powers and rulers, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness of the truth of the gospel. Romans 8, 37, you are more than conquerors through God and in Christ. More than conquerors. Those who choose the discomforting path, those who choose to be mocked because they have put their faith in the old rugged cross, which is the symbol of disdain and shame, you are made more than a conqueror. Triumph over and shame the rulers and authorities of this world. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, quickly here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, tried triumphing over them in him. You think about the ISIS story again, the martyrs, the 21 Egyptian Christians who were beheaded by ISIS in 2015. Who was the one who gained? The, the, Muslim, the, the terrorists believed that they were killing them and casting them into hell to be judged by Allah as infidels, people of the cross, the ones who were vulnerable in positions of weakness, the ones who gained, the one who triumphed were the 21 beheaded Christians. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Present suffering and future glory. The Spirit will comfort God's children in present suffering. The last point, is 
Beware those, beware those who embrace comfortable faith that is void of confessing and walking humbly in Christ. If you just replace Pharisee with something a little bit more relevant to our day and our time, equally influential, equally corruptible, and a bad influence to Christians and those in the church, and it's comfortable faith, it's cheap grace, it's radically individualism, it's a self-focused, self-defined Christianity that's worldly and undemanding, cool, relevant, and politically correct, yet sadly, Christless. And what is your reward for cheap grace? What is your reward for consumeristic Christianity, for comfortable Christianity, a Christless Christianity? Your reward is judgment and hell. Denied before the angels of God will not be forgiven by the Holy Spirit. A comfortable faith leads to an uncomfortable eternity. I mentioned in the beginning about the first mountain. I didn't mention the second mountain. During this pandemic, you can do some soul searching. The first mountain represented ego, a vision for prominence, pleasure, success, and comfort. During this time, you've been kicked off that mountain. You've lost your job, lost health, lost wealth, lost relationships, lost honor and status? Will you continue to seek comfort in the things of the world? Or will you rebel? Will you go against the pursuits of the ego ideal, rebel against the culture's definition of what is right and good and proper and honorable and respectable, and embrace what is truly worth wanting, Embracing the uncomfortable faith in Christ, which bids us to come and die, to kill self-centeredness, to embrace other-centeredness. You embrace the second mountain, a life of self-denial that is rooted in, in confessing and walking humbly in Christ and inherit God's overwhelming comfort and the Spirit's guidance. The question you have to ask yourself. A question you have to ask yourself to determine what mountain you're seeking. What is your ultimate appeal? If your ultimate appeal is yourself, climbing and clawing to the top to obtain wealth, to obtain health, to obtain uh, respectability and comfort, that is your ultimate appeal. If your ultimate appeal is Christ, the first mountain you, you try to conquer, you're conquering it. The second, you are conquered. You surrender to Christ. It's about surrendering to yourself, denying yourself, sacrificing for others, and serving others for the glory of God. What mountain are you on? Are you on the mountain like the Pharisees? who seek their own honor, but do not love God, and deny Christ, and don't confess Him, 
and don't uh, acknowledge him for men? Or are you one who has confessed Christ, who acknowledged, acknowledges Christ before others, who confesses and humbly walks in Christ? What mountain are you on?